Hello and welcome to the Events Podcast, where we talk each week with event professionals about how they plan, promote and run their events. Whether you're running small meetups or large conferences, exhibitions and concerts, we focus on finding actionable tips that you can use straight away. This podcast is sponsored by our ticketing system, EventsFrame. Uh, we developed a system after running 300 plus events with my company, Apps Events, and we had an endless search for an amazing and cost-effective ticket solution. We tried everything and we designed events frame to be super easy to use with the best discount options out there. You can embed tickets in your own site or you can use our simple event site builder. Uh, most importantly, we have no ticketing fees. Normally event systems, they charge you 3% or more. We just charge a large flat low monthly fee. We've got hundreds of live events all across the world. We integrate with Stripe, PayPal, Braintree, and bank transfer. So please head on over to eventsframe.com for a free trial, and we'd love for you to check it out. So this week, uh, I'm in Prague as usual. It's been a really busy week for my company, Apps Events, in terms of running events. We ran some roadshow events in Bergen, Norway, together with Google. We had a, a training boot camp in Seattle. We've had a bunch of events in London and Newcastle in the UK and Scotland as well, Edinburgh. So it's been super busy. Uh, we've got a great team and you know that's really great when you can scale events to have people running them without you always being there, which is fortunately the stage we are at. With my second company, EventsFrame, it's been really busy as well. We did a launch on Product Hunt. I don't know who knows Product Hunt, but it's a website where you can launch a product. It's interesting. There's a whole system to it. You know, you get somebody called a hunter to to put your to effectively pitch your product on Product Hunt, and then you get people commenting, upvoting, you share videos. It was great. We had a lot of interest. So if you want to have a look on Product Hunt, you can see Events Frame. We got we got a lot of really really good feedback. Finally, to say, if you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review in iTunes or even better, drop me an email, dan at eventsframe.com. I'd love to hear from you uh, and I answer every email, so it'd be great to hear from you. I'd love to know what do you want, give me tips on what guests you want and any feedback on the, the interviews. So today's interview is with Will Cunhart and genuinely this, I think, is the best interview yet. It was fascinating. He's a really fascinating guy. Uh, Will Kunthart is a, he's a, a classically trained violinist who wanted to be a conductor, and obviously this is one of the most competitive jobs in the world, so he got his start by actually putting on his own concerts and employing himself as a conductor, and then he parlayed that into conducting with some of the world's biggest orchestras like the Halle Orchestra. He then founded his own orchestra, the Arensky Chamber Orchestra, which he then moved into running a series of immersive experiences. Now, I'm not sure if you've heard of immersive experiences, but if you Google it, it's a whole category of events where you go to an event and it can be a dinner or it can be a concert or it can be a combination and everything is themed around a certain topic. In his place, in his case, it was normally themed around musical pieces or, or plays, but he put some of these amazing events and, and we talk a lot about how Will still remains creative. He's, he's still a conductor and a musician and he produces real works of art uh, in his events, but they make him money. So he, he really, you know, he's a businessman without, without being a businessman. He produces works of art and, and he still makes money out of it. So this was a great interview. It was supposed to be half an hour. We talked for more than an hour. So I really hope you enjoy it. So here is Will. Hello and welcome to the events podcast. And today I'm really delighted to be talking, and I'm sure I'm going to get your name wrong in advance. It's William uh, Kunhart, is that, is that correct? Yeah, actually, to be honest, you've done a good job there. It's just simple. <laughs> yeah, Kunhart. It's the D, it's the D that confuses yeah, you. Yeah, the people. You get all kinds of pronunciations because of that D. 
Definitely. Well, William is, is a fascinating guy. I've been reading about him quite a bit online. He's a conductor and he's got quite a varied experience conducting in various orchestras. And the main reason we're talking today is he runs something called The Great Christmas Feast, which is at greatchristmasfeast.com, which looks amazing. It, it's kind of like a, an immersive, I'm probably describing it wrong again, but it looks like an immersive dining experience. It's, it's themed around a kind of Charles Dickens Christmas secret location, limited numbers, uh, and it's running for the whole of December. And uh, I'm keen to learn more about how, what journey led him to be running this event and, and how he runs it. So hello, Will. Yeah, hi, Dan. Nice to, nice to speak with you. Great. So, so Will, could we, just, we just started talking before we started recording. I'm really curious about your background because, you know, it's interesting, like being a conductor, it's a fascinating sort of career choice. Obviously, you don't meet many people doing it. So I'm curious how that came about and, and what your background is. My, my background in music is actually, it, it starts with the violin, which is obviously something a bit more normal that a lot of children do when they're very young. So I just started playing the violin when I was four and it grew and grew from there to the point where when I was 18, I went to music college to, to study the violin in London, a place called the Royal College of Music in London. And uh, very quickly, I kind of had this feeling that maybe my particular spread of things that I was good at, confident in, whatever it might be, uh, they really kind of aligned with, with conducting, which was not something I had tried before I was 18. I mean, who has really? Um, it's quite hard to sort of find an orchestra when you're when you're in your teens. But but here I was at music college, and I was kind of thinking that, that this conducting thing I might be something I could be be good at. Um, and so uh, because I was surrounded by other young musicians, I was able to start organising concerts uh, of of orchestras that I was putting together to to perform orchestral pieces and then conduct them. And that's kind of how I cut my teeth in in conducting. And I suppose that's how I started organising concerts. It was never really because I wanted to become an event organiser. It's actually because in order to to try out this skill and find out if it was something I wanted to do, uh, I, I had to organise concerts because that, there aren't just orchestras lying around, you know. Nice. For, that's, that's, you know fas- that's fascinating because I've, I've done similar things in different areas where, you know, there's not, there wasn't an opportunity for me to speak at, at an event related to what I was doing. It was actually education technology. So I just started running my own event, which is like something I guess a lot of people don't think of. You know, you can create your own event. Well, you know, you can sort of, you know, create your, put together your own piece of music. And then all of a sudden you've got experience because, you know, you put this together and you've got experience as a conductor. Yeah, totally. And I've always thought that those like those quite high barrier to entry things, when you when you come across something that you want to do, where you see there's this really high barrier to entry like that, like you're going to have to contact and find 60 people, put them together in a into an orchestra. And that's just like the start of it, because you're going to have to learn this piece of music, learn how to conduct, you're going to somehow like get some people to come to this concert, find a venue, blah, blah, blah. Uh, like when you come to something that's that daunting, it's, it's often like it's an indicator, isn't it, that, that this could really be something good for you to do because you can just imagine how many people must drop out at that stage when yeah. they realize what, what would be required. So if you can be one of those pe- few people that actually is able to push through and climb that mountain, actually, in a way, that's, an, uh, that's a brilliant way to find something you can be successful at because but, there's going to be hardly anyone that's going to be willing to do that. That's the thing. It's, all, it's also like not, not being a prima donna because a lot of people who are probably very talented, I'm sure you are very talented like a lot of people, but, but, but you're in a competitive field. A lot of people think, well, I should be, people should be coming to me and paying me to, 
to conduct, you know. But but then if yeah, you haven't got experience, think, who's going to do that? There's, there's probably a thousand other wannabe conductors who want to want to be, you know, performing. Yeah, I think two things that have happened is well, first of all, there's that like revisionist thing. It's just that when you actually go back into the nitty gritty of like really great performers and musicians through history, and you think of those like really classic people like Mozart or Beethoven, another person I think of is Wagner. Actually, all of those people were were demons when it came to like trying to get money and trying to get performances. Like you think yeah. that you'd think that maybe they were just because we're talking about the 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 greatest. Genie, genii or whatever the word would be yeah. of all time and actually when you look at how much time they had to spend like doing the dirty work uh, marketing themselves for want of a better word not that that word existed then I guess but essentially marketing themselves growing their quote-unquote brand they spent tons of time doing it there's thousands of letters from Beethoven like kind of manipulating people into giving him concerts giving him money so he can write music Wagner exactly the same Mozart all these people so it, it, there's this revisionist thing that when you come to look at them you just see this genius which is the true part uh, but also what seems to be just kind of a, a string of successes and opportunities and you don't actually see the dirty work that, that went into them and then the, I think the other thing is because I used to really suffer from that a lot is that I just really stopped caring what I mean I actually don't because I used to have this this fear that oh the more I organize the more my colleagues as musicians are going to think oh he has to organize things because he's no good and the older I get, I mean, I say the older I get, I'm 29 now, the less I just, I just don't even really care. As long as like, if, if organizing things gets me to where I want to doing the things I want to be doing, I don't really mind. Even if this, which is definitely not true, even though I know it's not true, I, I've come to the point where I say, even if it is true that people are saying to me, or oh, saying about me, oh, he's organizing events because people don't ask him for theirs. Don't, don't mind really because yeah. I'm doing what, I'm doing so much that if that's the price I have to pay, fine. It's it's interesting. I mean, I mean, Steve Jobs said, um, "Great, I think it was great artistship was his was his quote." You know? Yeah, which yeah, is, yeah. Well, fin- is, I always talk about finishing, like finishing things. Yeah, yeah it's true. You know, it's interesting because like my musical experience is a completely different level to yours. I was, it's more like rock and punk rock. I play bass guitar and I've played in some bands, and, and punk's an interesting scene because, like. It's got this great, it has this DIY ethos built into it, you know, like it's all about like doing everything yourself and, and bypassing the system. But, you know, so many big punk bands signed to major record labels. And, and it's, it's interesting, like how much they try to pretend they're not kind of playing the system, you know, because they, they don't want to lose a sort of respect. But they obviously, they're running it as a business. And, there's, you know, I've got no problem with it because, you know, I'm, you know, I'm in my 40s now. I'm not idealistic and people have to pay mortgages and they have to live and you, ha- you have to make money, you know? But it's interesting how much in that, that particular scene they're desperate to say they don't make money out of it and it's not a business, you know? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't have experience in that kind of side of music, but, but I think it is a great strength of a, a scene like that because I think, well, it, conversely, one of the strengths and weaknesses of, of like uh, classical music, orchestral music, that the stuff that I do and, and, and love is that it's become so abstracted, but it's been around for so much longer than any other genre of Western music anyway, yeah. that like it's become so abstracted, which is great in one sense. It means we've got these like works of unimaginable complexity, uh, works of music and things of, of unimaginable complexity that, that deliver so such profound e- emotional messages. And they're so sort of deeply moving because yeah. um, this art form has been developed and developed and developed. But then on the other hand, it's kind of 
become so abstracted that it has lost touch with how the world works. And, and that can sometimes be a real weakness, whether it's in terms of like actually people wanting to come to concerts or whether it's musicians being practical enough that they are actually able creatively to do the things they want to do. Yeah. And both sides of the coin, sort of behind the scenes and you know, back of house and front of house. It, it leads to weaknesses when uh, an art form becomes this abstract. Absolutely fascinating. Look, just what, I want to move on a bit. So can we talk a bit about your career? As obviously, you know, you t- you've talked about how you got started running these events. And obviously you're involved in something called the Arenska Chamber Orchestra. And you're doing a few things. Like, have you, I mean, I know very little about your world, is it? I guess as a conductor, are you essentially a freelancer? And, or, or do people yeah. work full time for an orchestra? What's kind of the life of a, of a conductor? There's a few there's a few things to this or a few parts to this I I suppose so um like if I just go chronologically when I got to college I had a very standard ambition of I mean standard but incredibly amazing and difficult ambition of becoming a top flight international conductor and to answer your question what that would probably mean is being the resident conductor or principal conductor of a major orchestra somewhere in the world uh, which would tie you down to uh, quite a few weeks of the year but not as many as people think people would think oh the principal conductor he must be in there 52 weeks of the year can often be as little as 10 weeks of the year that a principal conductor is contracted to be conducting with the orchestra that they are responsible for and then you'd spend the rest of the time traveling the world conducting orchestras um, of you know different cities so most orchestras particularly as I said the top flight orchestras uh, have this massive uh, schedule roster of of guest conductors that that come and work with them. That was my my goal because that's very much how the industry has developed uh, conducting within classical music. That's how it's developed. That that's the kind of career you you can aspire for. I suppose a, a few things started to happen over the years. Most of them were like kind of philosophical things that I uh, problems that I started to have with that career you know even if I should be so lucky as to ever get to that point I started to have some kind of issues with it I think the first one was um it's hard to say I think there's a lot of problems in classical music as a business and some of them get in the way particularly in large organizations you know if you're in a tiny organization like a quartet of four you're not going to get troubled by these things but there are issues with it just like economically things like that that means that sometimes conducting orchestras can be quite a, a difficult experience. Even things like the pay gap between a conductor and an orchestral musician, which is pretty vast, yep. and the higher up the food chain you go, the larger it gets. I think that just promote, and that's, I mean, you can go into why that is as a whole sort of book and novel in itself, <laughs> how that developed. But it developed sort of in the 20th century. But it leads to, I suppose, quite rightly, a potentially quite negative environment in which this one person walks into a room who's being paid 20, 30 times what anyone else is being paid. And and it almost becomes like a sort of test of their mettle as opposed yeah. to a kind of positive. And that, this painting with a really broad brush, there's loads of orchestras that are like completely not even remotely like that. Sure. But then on the other hand, there are a lot of orchestras that are like that where there's this sense of almost like test and and conflict almost that you have to prove yourself in in some capacity and I just I just didn't know whether going about city after city week after week sort of 
proving yourself and then proving yourself again and then proving yourself again. I wasn't sure whether life is too short for, for that kind of, whether that kind of stuff, I'm not quite sure I'm macho enough to be interested in, in like, I don't get enough of a kick out of that sort of test, I don't right. think. Uh, so, so that became something that I started to think about a lot, started to think about a lot as I, as I grew up a little bit, uh, like met my partner, Amy, started to think about whether, you know, as a, as, as a, as a long-term partner, as in the future, as a husband, and then in the future, future, as, as a father, whether like being away from home sort of 40 weeks of the year was the right thing to do. That became another thing. Sure. All kinds of questions about this. I suppose they all boil down to control and, and the ability, I think that's very kind of on trend in entrepreneurship and business of designing your own life and designing a perfect life and that whole kind of, you know, that whole four hour work week thing of Tim Ferriss and all this stuff. Yes, of that's like, my Bible, by the way. That's, I've read that book probably 10 times. <laughs> like, and, and, and I suppose the message underneath it, which sometimes gets lost, I think, that the point being that you should be able to design the perfect life i suppose i suppose i started to think that like this this way of being of classic classic classical conducting being quite a set thing that maybe i i have i'd have no power to change as an individual so i'm just a drop in the ocean and like whether whether i wanted to be put into something that someone else had invented that didn't necessarily match with my ideals i think another thing that uh, actually completely creatively I would say that, you know, if you took two really top conductors uh, and you blindfolded an audience and the first conductor walked out to do the, the first movement of a symphony and then he walked off and the next conductor walked on to do the second movement of a symphony, if you could do that process silently and the audience couldn't see that process happening, like what percentage would know that the conductor had changed? <laughs> yeah, definitely. I'm going to say like under 1%. I mean, I'm probably massively under 1%. And then I started to think, like, I don't know if I would want to, as I just said before, life being short and you're only getting one crack at it. I don't know if I'd want to be doing something where even at the highest level, there's this sense that you're replaceable. And also this sense that, that you have to kind of, this sense that you're just going to do what basically some unbelievably talented unbelievably gifted musicians have done nigh on perfectly already like a classic thing i don't know record all the symphonies of beethoven i mean if you look at the conductors that have already recorded the symphonies of beethoven yeah given that's a standard thing to do like what on earth are you going to add to it's that it's almost like the downside's bigger than the upside the downside if you mess yeah, it up yeah, for well. that legacy and then i just thought i wonder i just thought i think i will be more proud of my life i will be happier in the doing of my life and less anxious in the doing of my life and just more creatively fulfilled as a person if i'm doing something that only i could do the lifestyle design thing because i'm fascinated by that and the, the way i see it is like it's it's only re and tim ferris just i mean a lot of our books kind of a bit cheesy but it, but there's a few really good points now and one is that you know like we we inherit like a certain certain options which is like you know you take a job and the job is 40 to 60 to 80 hours a week depending on what you work in or maybe you can start a business and that that's a whole complex process involved in hiring people but you know the, the kind of the, the a lot of it's been driven by kind of web tools and just a new way uh, of being able to work in that you know you can create a business with just cooperating with people you know on an ad hoc basis and yep. and, and work and work a whole new like type of lifestyle for yourself based around what do you want? Do you want to be able to live in different countries? Do you want to be able to, 
you know, take Fridays off or just basic fundamental day-to-day things, you know, and that, that's what I, that's kind of how I see the processes of, of, of the whole lifestyle design. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I suppose it came from exactly that not wanting to compromise. So not yeah. wanting to compromise between being wildly ambitious and really, but so wildly ambitious in a kind of a public sense in that I wanted to achieve these amazing things, yeah. really ambitious in a personal sense. I want to become the best musician I can be. But then also the kind of have your cake and eat it mentality of also wanting to have an amazing uh, family life, social life, uh, having lots of free time to pursue other things. And as you were saying, probably what think the, a kind of outlook that traditionally would be impossible, would have been impossible, that you're going to have to choose between one of those two philosophies of having this very rounded, very balanced life or having this very extreme but very high achieving life. Yeah, I mean, I'm curious, isn't it, isn't it another thing? I mean, I'd imagine it must be incredibly competitive to get one of these jobs as a, as a kind of house conductor for an orchestra. I mean, I'm just, I'm just thinking, say, the UK. I mean, I'd imagine there's like less, less than, 100, less than 100, 10, 10, maybe 50 of these jobs. I mean, what would you, what would you say? Oh, How many people would you say, say in the UK? Also? There's four major London orchestras. There's a Bournemouth Symphony Orchestra in the south of England. Then there's uh, probably going to get shocked because I'm going to leave one out. But then there's like in the north of England... There's two orchestras in Manchester. There's the Royal Liverpool, Phil, CBSO, Birmingham. So that's like eight orchestras. Then you've got other things like the Royal Opera House, Opera North, English National Opera. But you're going to come to definitely, and then smaller groups as well, smaller groups as well that are no less amazing, but perhaps have slightly less kind of complete schedules of concerts. They're not performing week in, week out. Oh, five major orchestras in London. BBC Symphony as well. There we go. Yeah. I haven't made anyone angry, I don't think. Yeah, so so yeah, tiny, tiny number of jobs. And, and obviously some people are totally brilliant and get jobs like that quite early on in life. And other kinds, uh, other people no less brilliant, actually, that, that have to wait decades to, to get those kinds of jobs. But as the older I grew, the more I saw the price as not being worth what one has to pay. Yeah, that's, that's, that's really interesting. So cool. It, it, so, that's, like, that's like even assuming that one, like, one's good enough to even get there, which is like a whole other question entirely. But yeah. that's just... Like well, I but I'm sure you know you're an ambitious guy, and I think if you decided you wanted to do that, you would have you'd have said, okay, here's here's how I'm going to attempt to achieve this, and I'll do my, you know, like, and and it's got it's going to be a numbers game at the end of the day, isn't it? Because like like if you're saying there's like, you know, ten, ten, twenty, really optimistically twenty jobs. I mean, that's that's nothing really. That's like, yeah. that's, it's easy to become a professional footballer, probably, you know, because there's more jo- paying jobs in the UK doing that. Yeah. yeah, no, of course. I mean, I mean, there are there are. That's that's the the simple fact. So so anyway, so. Going on from what you were what you were saying there, so the first time I started organising events, as I alluded to, was at kind of a means to an end to start this career, and then I became more and more interested in this orchestra that I'd started called the Arensky Chamber Orchestra, which I started at nineteen. It was a professional wow. orchestra, um, and so I'd got kind of funding, government funding, and and this and that and the other kind of funding I'd managed to write off, write grant applications, this kind of thing, get it all in and and start start performing concerts. I mean, the, the people that I mean, I was I was so, so lucky that the people that I fell in with were quite a bit older than me. So they brought quite a lot of artistic subtlety to the equation and a lot of um, higher goals for the for the orchestra of like, 
changing how classical music is presented, creating a context that's a lot more modern and that maybe attracts a completely new audience. And, and, and beyond that, a, a context of performing classical music that's more authentic to who we are, which is regular young people, yeah. rather than the, the context for classical music that it's usually performed in, which is perhaps was invented by a prior generation and suits their ideals rather than our own. So, so it, had, it, had, it took on this like lofty emission that I had not anticipated. And, and I think because of that, I then became more and more engrossed in, in making it work because that was such an interesting thing to be doing. And uh, that, that went on for like eight or nine years. And I have to be honest and say that it, 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 it did well enough that it never quite died, but it yeah. never became some smash hit success. And it really did get to the point a couple of years ago where I think I just... I had sort of got to the stage where I decided that I'd really tried this stuff and I'd really tried to make a difference and make a change and that probably there was a reason why all conductors go into that standard career path that we'd just been discussing and yeah. that maybe that was the thing to do. And um, a, kind of a few things came together that we got a little chunk of money. A, a, a different friend actually who'd been playing uh, timpani in the orchestra but not been involved in managing it or, or organizing things, said to me, you know, I'd be really interested in coming on board in a sort of more managery way as well as playing if you were, if you wanted. So this like kind of injection in, in terms of capacity of what we could achieve, a bit of injection in money. And we just took a punt on this thing called um, Night's Darkling Glory, which was an immersive experience based on a Wagner opera called Tristan and Isolde. Right, and that was 2017. So you, we, you came up with you came up with this idea, or somebody else came up with the idea. In 2009, our third ever concert had been called the Transfigured Night, and and we had attempted to create an immersive experience around this piece called Transfigured Night, which is about a couple that meet in this kind of spooky forest. It's got a whole poem that goes with it. And it's this couple that meet in this forest and she's pregnant with another man's child. You've got to think this is written in 1901. So it's pretty out there for 1901, this yeah. poem. She's pregnant with another man's child and it's called The Transfigured Night because his response is that actually it, through loving the child, you know, without condition, the child will be his. But the, it, regardless of who the biological father sure. is, a super modern concept for 1901. We had, but because it's obviously set in this forest and et cetera, et cetera, in the middle of the night, we had wanted to create. We had said, wouldn't it be cool if you could create a transfigured night where you thought you were walking into a concert hall and instead you walked into a forest in the middle of, you know, you walked into a forest in the middle of the night. And we did some really cool things in that concert, but absolutely didn't come close to this this goal. But it sat there in the back of the mind. It's like, that's what we're really trying to do. Wow. That's what we're where, was, where was, did you rent like a sort of an industrial yeah, space? Yeah, there was a place called Cadogan Hall, which is in Sloan Square, which is a just really kind of uh, relatively famous uh, classic concert hall in the middle of London. And right. uh, we worked, I mean, again, we didn't know what we were trying to do. So we worked with visual artists from the Royal College of Art and they made some amazing pieces. But I now looking back on it, I realized that I was hoping to, I was meaning to work with set designers, not fine artists. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. To make this thing. So we got these like very cool installations and what have you, but but not what we were looking for. But anyway, the seed was planted and it sort of was sitting there for, for nine years. And then in the meantime, obviously all this stuff came to be like secret cinema, uh, punch drunk being i guess the most famous two and then this word like immersive experience became part of at least in in england and probably the states became part of like standard vocab yeah well oh, when, yeah. when do you think that started because i started I, I started hearing about it 
I mean, I've been living in Prague for 14 years now, and I'm just starting to hear about it here. But uh, I think it was it maybe five years ago, or was it longer than that? Do you think? I think 10 years ago. Yeah, definitely. Punch Drunk is older than 10 years, which I suppose is the like the sort of daddy of them all. And what's uh, Punch so Drunk? Can you just just people theater. who don't know? Punch what's... Drunk is like an immersive theatre company. I don't know their history enough, but I suppose. They, to me anyway, are the first like really famous company for taking this concept of like promenading theatre, which I guess has been around for ages, yep. and turning it into something more extreme and more yeah immersive, being right. the obvious words. So, like I said, we tried to create immersive experience without really knowing what we were doing and not really knowing the how to do it. And in the meantime, all of this stuff had grown up whereby we were able to kind of see how you should do it. And, and people, you know, people existed with websites called immersive set designers that like in 2009 didn't exist. Right. There's a whole and industry of people who make sets for immersive experiences. Then. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Like now you can just Google immersive set designer and you can find an immersive set designer. So, so which is what we were able to do, for example, almost this like last throw of the dice uh, for me anyway, I said, all right, let's try and do this grand thing that was always our ambition because it's now a bit more obvious how we might be able to do it and so we put on this event over a long weekend about a thousand people on a sort of thursday friday saturday sunday called in night's darkling glory uh, an immersive music experience based on the opera tristan and isolde yeah it was just like successful beyond our wildest so, so i've got to say obviously we've, we've skipped a big point here how did you get a thousand people to come to this event i mean that's some pretty impressive promotion skills like did you have a, a list an email list did did you have a network of people who promoted it to their network or how, how did you get the word out? Well, I think, I think one of the strengths of our group of three is, is uh, three that, that are now the, the, the directors of our events company uh, that was born out of this immersive music experience. Uh, we've always been quite contrarian thinkers. And I think we've always, uh, there is, I think I must have, it's a quote I'm sure in the four hour work, there's something like if you're on the side of the majority you're wrong. You stop and think or something. Something yeah. is a Mark Twain quote. There's something about being on the side of the majority and basically that being a warning sign. And I think I know I've always lived my life in that in the, on those terms. And I think my two co-directors, Rowan and Eddie, have a similar way of thinking based on just on Facebook advertising. Wow. But pretty much exclusively based on social, paid social media, advertising. I don't know if, if anyone out there listens to a chap called Gary Vaynerchuk. Called Vaynerchuk, Vaynerchuk. I, I, I'm like, my wife gets... She just goes crazy me watching Gary Vaynerchuk videos. Yeah, I'm I'm a I'm a victim of his. So videos. so I think I think that that he I, I don't I mean I do like his videos and stuff like that, but I, I'm not I haven't read his books and things. But just one of the things I've always picked up on him is that he's always said sort of social media advertising is wildly underpriced, wildly effective, actually. And so I think that... Um, well, I, think, I one, think he's saying right now Instagram is what he's saying is a really underpriced one. He seems to keep coming back to this for, for now. I just decided that when you just look at it logically and you, you stand back and you think like, actually, what, what do flyers and posters and things do versus what things that you see on social media do. And I just I was just fairly convinced that there was this power in, in social media advertising that was just, it sounds so weird because I think it's one of those things that everyone knows and not that many people actually do. Like when you say, oh, you know, there's immense power in social media. But, oh yeah, 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 of course there is. But then when you look at people, how people spend their money on their time, don't think they go like, all in on it. I mean, the, I think the concept that I'm drawn to just by looking at what my friends who aren't musicians, how they choose to spend their time, it's, it's, it's all done on word of mouth. It's such a cliche, but it's true. So I think that there's, 
I think the great power of social media advertising is because it's integrated into the platform that you're advertising on, it kind of has a bit of word of mouth vibe to it. Even though it's a paid advert, you've paid for it to be on their feed because it's yes. in a, a sort of word of mouth platform. I think it, it you get engagement because people are in that word of mouth zone. So, oh, that's interesting. I'm going to look on that. Compa uh, I'm going to click on that, sorry, compared to seeing a billboard, which is just obviously a piece of advertising. I think there's that. And I think then we also just basically worked almost exclusively with bloggers and, yeah, just bloggers and influencers. Uh, again, as a form of sort of a very quick way to get word of mouth spread because, you know, and I just look at Amy, um, who follows quite a, a few blogs. You know, she really trusts those people. They're kind of like pseudo not pseudo friends but you know what i mean quasi yeah, friends definitely. because you like what they do they're very consistent in their communications with you they're quite honest in their communications with you so you feel like you know them so then when they recommend something if you're you're going to believe it so so we just worked with those two channels really blog that sort of online blog channel yeah facebook uh facebook instagram and, social media did you i'm curious did you figure this out yourself the whole facebook ad thing or did you outsource it or did one of your partners do it i'm curious if, if you thought oh, i'm just, just gonna learn everything about this and do it myself just totally did it ourselves that's cool totally did it yeah, ourselves cool. made loads of mistakes i remember this i can just i'm sitting in my kitchen now and i can i can actually remember the time when like i think we just it wasn't anything particularly sinister i think we'd literally just like mucked up our billing and we got locked out of our facebook ads account and you've got yeah. all these horror stories online of people's businesses imploding because they get locked out of their facebook ad account and it's actually quite opaque as to how you get in touch with anyone to get it resolved. But anyway, so so there was like, there'd been loads of things down the line like that. I remember that being like the one where I, I literally thought it was the end of the world because yeah. our, we, our advertising was going so well and then just suddenly have this message like you've been locked out of your Facebook account. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it just turned out it's because like something had gone wrong with our billing so they thought we weren't paying for our ads. So as soon as we fixed it, it, it came back. But sure. uh, anyway... Um, yeah, just made made our own mistakes, and I think just learned by being a practitioner. Really, that's cool. So, so you, so back to the store. You've got like about a thousand people to come to this event. Is that right? Yeah, one thousand two hundred and fifty. I think it was in the end. People to 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 come to this event in Night's Darkling Glory. Um, so you had the sort of you had a a meal being cooked by Natalie Coleman, who won MasterChef here in the UK yeah. about 20, 2012. She's cooking this uh, medieval feast type thing. And then you had a cast of actors, but one main character who was kind of telling the story of Tristan and Isolde, which is actually an ancient medieval British legend and beyond Celtic legends and, and back people think its roots are in like ancient Persian legends and stuff like that. Anyway, so a classic love potion story, uh, forbidden love from rival clans kind of thing that Wagner turned into one of the most amazing operas that exists. And you kind of have this, this uh, three part experience that was a dining experience, a theater slash storytelling experience, and then a music experience where you arrived uh, there was a three-story venue, and you so you ate in a kind of uh, again, quote unquote, castle on the bottom floor. Then you travelled across the sea in a boat on the second floor, and then on the third floor you arrived in a magical forest in France. This is all just uh, elements from the story. You arrived in this magical 
place in France where there was this live orchestra waiting for you and they played you music from the opera along with the kind of final punchline of the story. Yeah, you, you heard this live orchestra perform and this opera singer playing Isolde um, appeared in this miraculous vision. Tristan and Isolde both die uh, in the opera, classic opera. Um, so we have this vision of Isolde who appears... Uh, the punchline of the opera is that actually their death, which is thought to be a tragedy, is actually not. It's actually sort of glorious because they're both at peace and at rest and they're with each other completely unmolested in a way that would never have been possible in life because they're from rival, um, like I said, rival kingdoms. Right. Everything stood between them in real life and in death they are together forever kind of thing. So, so you had this vision of her at the end telling, revealing to everyone that actually this great tragedy was no tragedy at all. And then people went off into the night having heard this amazing, amazing music. Yeah, it was kind of a success. I mean, there's loads wrong with it, as you can imagine, because I think we basically, I, I don't want to be presumptuous, but I think we're doing what no one has ever done before. So, even so, though so with this event, I'm really curious. Um, obviously, you come up with a concept, you work with the, you know, the, arts, the art students or whatever, who, when you should have gone for the, the, the set designers, but, but you work with a bunch of artists, you get the musicians, the chefs. There's a lot of things to coordinate on the night. You know, you've got to coordinate the, the actors, you've got to coordinate food and everything, and most importantly, you've got a lot of, a lot of customers to, to do. So did, did, were the three of you on their staff running it yourself? Were you, were you yeah, the people actually coordinating it? It's the most insane weekend of my entire life. Yeah, I mean... There'd be times when I remember Eddie because he played he played the yeah. There's just so many wild, wild stories from yeah. that end of of things that happened just because it was only the three of us running it really. I mean, yeah. there was there was. Do you other remember people. any particular story of anything that happened there? Though? Definitely my favourite story. So we'd hired a piper, like a proper Scottish piper, because it just fitted so well with this medieval theme. He kind of would play intermittently in the banquet area, in that kind of castle area. It gave yeah. it, it was really cool, gave it such a strong flavour um, of medievalness. But then I just remember there's one, one of the nights, because he didn't quite get the whole thing because I don't think many people do it's quite a new <laughs> so there was one time when everyone was everyone had moved upstairs to the ship and I don't think he realised that they were there actually that was the second stage of the performance the kitchen for the artist was was on the opposite side of the ship so he right. literally just walked into the ship walked through made himself a cup of tea and walked <laughs> it's absolutely not his fault it's, it's entirely our fault because no one's in charge letting people know what to do that was an absolutely that was absolutely brilliant um, what about like attendees coming 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 late and things does, does that do you have to be really strict on that or do you find a way to sneak them in without ruining the whole experience yeah i mean we, we were really strict on that i mean I, I think what's quite good is that because we in terms of making an immersive event we're definitely not the first people to be doing an immersive event in general we're kind of able to just basically look at other event makers literature and just see the practical points that they're stressing and kind of realize ahead of time those are obviously the things that go wrong yep. like for example we have a really strict latecomers policy and we just plaster it over everything yeah um and that's just it's just said umpteen times in the build-up to the event so yeah yeah i think we were quite that, that, those kind of things we probably spared quite a few problems just by being able to see what other people had done in this particular kind of immersive space sure uh, so so yeah so in that in the early days it was just it was just literally the three of us doing it. Wow, it was and completely bananas. You just see, uh, you see. I mean, I couldn't because I was kind of conducting the orchestra, but so many times, particularly like Eddie who played the timpani, there's easily like 
evenings where I'd just be, where on earth is Eddie? Because he's normally at the back of the orchestra playing the timpani. And, you know, he'd be sort of sorting out a million and one problems on all yeah. the other, uh, on all the other floors. Um, <laughs> Imagine. And so it just couldn't, literally just couldn't come up and play the drums right now in the, in the, in the performance and things like this. I mean, I, I'm really painting it, but I mean, obviously overall it was just, it was a really like brilliant success. And I think it was a really amazing experience for people because I don't think it was an, I don't think those are art forms that they, a lot of people come into contact with and particularly not where they can just like, but the, the first floor had a lot of chairs, but had also sofas and beanbags and things like this that people kind of uh, sat down on, laid down on, whatever. Sounds, sounds great. Like, yeah, I think for all its flaws, I mean, I think the vast, vast majority of people forgave it its flaws just because it offered so many kind of magical and special uh, moments for them. And yeah, the, the, the feedback was just really uplifting. And uh, I think what was also really exciting was that it presented a model that's commercially viable. I think like to a lot of people, that doesn't sound that exi- that doesn't sound that extraordinary because no. life works. But in classical <laughs> music the entirety of classical music, it, you're just taught from a very young age that classical music is a loss-making industry and that it has to, depending on what country you live in, it has to get propped up by the government, it has to get propped up by private donors, by charities, basically it has to get propped up by someone because yeah. there's absolutely no way that a classical music endeavour, apart from maybe a solo artist, I guess a solo artist just doing their own thing can be self-sufficient, but that a large classical music organisation absolutely cannot be self funding and and one of the things that kind of got revealed through what we were doing was that actually this model this slightly more theatrical model of presenting classical music was potentially self-funding and we're now at the stage where we're a limited company not a charity which is almost entirely unique in in kind of inverse commas serious classical music i mean i don't know what that means but in terms of people really not trying to be commercial but trying to just make extraordinary works of art with classical music it's pretty much i don't know anyone else that is a limited company and not a registered charity i think the two are not against each other because if you make amazing works of art people will come to it you know they're not gonna, they're not going to come to kind of a you know half-assed greatest hits with with a few you know actors walking around it's got to be an amazing experience and true to whatever the piece you're doing then you're gonna then it's gonna be successful you know i think yeah, and I think one of the one of the kind of beliefs that w- we were able not to walk in with, which I think a lot of people walk into classical music with on the making side of classical music, is that uh, like young people don't want to play for classic pay for 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 classical music, but actually, or young people don't have money. Which obviously there's a there's a sector of society that that doesn't have money to to go to culture. It's really important that we find ways to. Uh, make sure that they can come and experience it but but in general just talking about general people uh, a young person will I, I mean I don't know how much a ticket is to Glastonbury right but but a sort of person in their teens 20s 30s will drop hundreds of pounds sure. without thinking uh, plus all the accommodation travel whatever it is hundreds of pounds on a ticket to Glastonbury so obviously price isn't actually a demotivator like if it's desirable so i think a lot of people in classical music they focus on making it cheaper whereas they should be focusing on making it desirable which is what i mean nice duck in glory is not cheap not cheap at all but it was really desirable so people wanted to pay the money to come and and our events continue to follow in that in that vein it's it's classical music it's not anything are you you repeating i think you said it was like a long weekend are are you still repeating this event or or is is it over now so that event's over. That event is, is over. I think that basically we've done two really large experiences. We've done that and uh, a thing called the Great Mass Ball, which we did this summer, which was basically Swan Lake. 
right. uh, the story of Swan Lake, the music of Swan Lake, the dancing uh, of Swan Lake. Um, I think both of them are ideas that we would definitely want to repeat and bring back, but I kind of consider those two events to be, to a degree, our education in making what we're trying to make, which is this like kind of new genre of of live orchestral music um, and did you get i'm curious if you got a lot of attendees who went to the first event coming to the second one coming to swan lake yeah definitely definitely i think so like i, I mean i think there are always going to be people who like with anything like you said with punk rock they're like they're going to be people that love punk rock and people that just don't like punk rock and that's nothing to so there are obviously going to be people that just whatever you do with classical music they're just not going to like classical music because that's just the text yeah. but i think that yeah we were really happy with the percentage of people that wanted to come again i mean i think the only failing in that regard i think sometimes that we make is because we're striving to be so perfect and make such leaps and bounds in what we do every time i don't think people realize it's just three young guys like in their bedrooms making these things i think yeah. people sometimes think we have a kind of 10 story office block and 100 employees sometimes and i think even more people would have come back i mean that's something we've we, i'm actually in the process of doing right now um with our second event having been done for about a month or so month or two uh, is actually finding ways to let these people that are like the really early adopters the people that have purchased what we make inside its first year of existence like letting them know that like, like you like you guys have done with event frame I mean, I've, I've been in touch with you guys about certain things that um, I'd love to do with event frame for art events, and they can't be done right now, but that's absolutely fine because I kind of get where you are in, in the process, whereas yeah. probably if, if I thought that you were a 300-person employee company and you said to me, oh, this thing is impossible, I'd have a very different reaction to yeah. the reaction I have today. And I think so, so something that I'm trying to do is get a bit more of the story, the story I'm telling you now, out to to our audience because I think that would increase even more the people because I, I the people that we've been able to speak to in person where we've been able to say oh this is the story like this is the overarching story behind this company then they they become like not even just they were fans and now they become sort Super of fans. I, because, I would I mean I, I wouldn't even consider it I mean you, you should definitely do that I mean a hundred percent you should get everything out because your story like it's it's engaging to me and a hundred percent is to people listening to this. And, and that's like, that adds a whole new dimension to it. It's not just like a cool event based on the, on this piece of music or whatever. It's actually, there's a whole backstory, which is just as interesting, you know, about how you're finding a way to build this kind of lifestyle for yourself and how you, you know, you're young guys doing this. And I, th I think people would love that. How, have you got an email list, by the way? Are you, are you emailing everyone who went to your previous event about you know, yeah, using something like MailChimp? When I talk about social media advertising, I think because I'm not one of these kind of Gary Vaynerchuk, like always on social media types. I mean, I, I know I just said we, we're basically all in on social media in terms of advertising, but I, I, I don't use social media at all. Really? I don't have a profile on Facebook because I need one to, to, to advertise on Facebook, ironically. So what we do, funnel everyone into a mailing list, and then we use the mailing list to sell rather than using the social ads to sell. We use the social ads to let people know about the event and then to sign up for alerts about the event. And then we use our email list. I, I just, I feel most comfortable with that because I don't think I'm clever enough or intelligent enough when it comes to social media channels to know when something is gonna be a Facebook versus when it's gonna be a MySpace. And I'd hate to have like invested zillions of pounds into developing like a Facebook uh, following only to find that it, Facebook is actually the next MySpace. Uh, whereas email, I'm 99% sure is gonna be around for a very, very long time. De definitely. So 
And oh, can I ask what, what email can, software you're using? Are you using MailChimp or something different? Yeah, MailChimp. Using MailChimp. Also using um, text messaging. I think text messaging is pretty cool and 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 underrated because like what what percentage of text messages do you open? Yeah. Like hundred percent virtually. Ninety percent of text messages do you open? Yeah. So so another thing that we do sometimes is as much as possible, particularly people that came to our events, is collect their phone number data, because I think that's a really cool... I remember the, the the way we alerted our past bookers to this Swan Lake thing. So people that have booked Nice Darkling Glory, the way we alerted them all to Swan Lake, uh, the Great Mask Balls, we said something like, we sent them a text saying something like, the black swan has chosen you. Right. Or something like that. And can you imagine you're sitting at work and then you get a, a text message out of the blue from, from Prince Siegfried's palace saying... The black swan has chosen you. Like it's such a cool. I think it's Definitely. such an underrated form of communicating, particularly with you, you people. Can, you can make, you, you've got the great thing. You can make the communication part of the experience, like the email or the text or anything, can be part of the whole. You know, it can be in in the theme of, of whatever you're doing. And that's a big. That's a big. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's. I mean, that's absolutely something we do. I think. I do think like we have a lot of strength in written words in our in our group. Uh, there's a lot of people that can write pretty well. So yeah, I, I, we lean on that a lot for you to create the world as you said great was was the, the great christmas feast the kind of next thing you got onto yeah absolutely so that came out of the the great mass ball so so we so i mean kind of good thing bad thing i uh, think about the the great mass ball was that it was so that was like the best part of seven thousand people that came to the great mass wow. ball where <laughs> did you where did you hold that sorry a warehouse in Peckham, which is right. like this massive old warehouse in Peckham. Actually, it was a skate park, an indoor skate park that had just newly been torn down. So we, about a month after it had been torn down, we just got in there building this um, fantastical Swan Lake Palace and an enchanted lake wow. into, into there. So we sort of, it's kind of funny. We'd learned so, so, so much from In Night's Darkling Glory. And so in a way, it gave us the power to create this event that was literally five to six times the size. But unfortunately, the, the thing that made that so challenging was that it was then basically a completely new kind of event. So we sort of learned all this stuff about how to run an event for 1,250 people. But actually, an awful lot of th things change when it becomes 6,000, 7,000 people. So that was, again, another absolutely brilliant, another experience that we're incredibly proud of. That I think has like loads of absolutely amazing things in it, but another really hairy and not, not long weekend, like really hairy four weeks. And I'm sure uh, that's a whole, a whole different level of logistics. You've got to have security guards and things like that and a whole extra group of people you didn't have for the previous events. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And particularly the mechanics of running a theatre production, that's basically what you're doing. It's, all, it's quasi West End or Broadway, isn't it, at that stage? And I think what we've learned from that is, is the whole, uh, unfortunately, after the event, when we, when we sat down and said, why was that so unbelievably difficult to make it work? And like, how do... West End people managed to do it for like often 10 years without a break on shows. Uh, we kind of learned about the whole mechanics of theatre producers and, and this whole uh, unseen logistical group of people that actually just make shows happen yeah. smooth. That whole basically theatre production, theatre producers or just producers in general becomes uh, becomes the thing that you need to know about. So and, and um, the longer longer you run things and the more you run things, it, it easier it gets because it becomes a process. You know, like I remember. Well, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I run a lot of um, you know uh, events for schools. Like they're they're all mm -hmm. technical events for schools. And in the beginning, I, I did it just me. I ran a conference for 150 people, and it was crazy. I was running around, you know, 
it was literally just trying to stay afloat. And then, but now, now we run 300 plus a year. It, we've got a team, you know, and, and the team's doing the same thing week in, week out. And there's always problems, but still, if somebody's working full time on something, you know, you, you get a process going. So the longer you yeah. run it, the easier it gets. Yeah, totally. And so, I mean, I think that actually, in a way, that that's that was not not the motivation for the Great Christmas Feast in terms of a in terms of as an artistic concept and as a, and as an event that people are going to love. But I think one thing that attracted us to the idea is that it's a lot smaller than the Great Mask Ball. I mean, yeah, just don't don't talk to me about the similarity between those two names. I just. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Of anything better we literally you, you've like, got 80 80 people a night i think from the website yeah says. exactly exactly so it's 80 people a night and um um yeah i think one of the things that attracted us to it was the opportunity it gave us to do something perfectly because i think as most people probably experience that have started a startup in any field that has achieved that relatively explosive growth you're sort of always going by the seat of your pants because you're growing so fast and i think it was just it was really quite attractive to me at least this idea that actually the third thing should be a bit smaller than the second thing and that actually the kind of breathing space that gave us meant that the focus could be uh, instead of growth and and uh, getting bigger and bolder and whatever the focus could be on doing something really beautiful and a bit smaller and doing it absolutely irreproachably perfectly across and, the board and, yeah, and, and I, again it's like it like like we said in the beginning of the podcast kind of a dickensian christmas carol experience and yeah. and it, have you run it is this the second year you've done it or what's, what's no, the no 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 so this is a completely new show completely so like new said, right okay great this is our third show, completely new, much, much smaller than the second one, at least, uh, and smaller, slightly smaller, at least in numbers per night than the first one. And we're just really excited about, well, I think it's going to be a really, really beautiful concept. I absolutely love um, A Christmas Carol. It's been really exciting learning about, um, you know, you think of A Christmas Carol, the story of uh, Dickens almost being a cliched part of Christmas culture. And actually, at the time, it's radically inventive in yeah. that a lot of the Christmas traditions that it depicts that it's you know Dickens almost made them up really because he had this really really strong social motivation which is that he he wanted to write this polemic about how dire the situation was with uh, poverty in Victorian England and how it was just sort of brushed under the carpet and how actually not only was it terrible for those people, but it would have these uh, repercussions down the years. We cre if, if, if England created this incredibly impoverished, poorly educated lower class. And, and then he realized that his middle class readers would be made really uncomfortable by a um, kind of uh, firebrand style political speech and instead he said i'm going to write this really inspiring story that is actually i'm never going to i'm not going to tell people they need to give money to to the poor or, or whatever i'm just going to write a story in which that is made to look so important and so just uh, special that people are actually going to do the things that i was intending to demand they do through inspiration rather than through sort of forcing them to do it so actually you just would never think that that's what a christmas carol is about but no, actually, not at all. so amazing things happened like like just the a lot of traditions sprung up from the book actually i think a, a, there was this complete revolution in victorian england of the, the humanitarian side of christmas whereby it's whether you believe whether you're a christian or not it's this time when families come together when they reunite when uh, all these social things of kind of parties and and game playing games and having meals together 
this sort of really powerful social impact of Christmas, whether you see it as a religious festival or not, that started or, or was revived in Victorian times. And, and Dickens was a massive part of that, because I think prior to that point, it that whole sort of yeah idea of big Christmas feast was seen as quite a whimsical, outdated, countryside, rural thing. And, and Dickens painted this idea of, of a uh, urban Christmas that I'm not sure existed that strongly prior to that point. It's really hard for us to imagine. Wow. But he became a massive part of this, the tradition that we love now. Actually, this book was a huge part of it. Rather than being something that is typifies it it actually is a, a big motivating force behind it and like things happened in Victoria and people started doing things like giving workers Christmas day off and giving them presents you know companies would give their employees would treat their employees nicely at Christmas and a lot of people were inspired by reading Christmas Carol in the 1800s for the first time to do this stuff like I think t until her death the queen of Norway, I think Norway, sent presents to kids in uh, poor children in Britain with a label uh, with Tiny Tim's love. People reported, like London papers reported philanthropy like skyrocketing in the years after Christmas Carol was published. Really amazing things. It's actually quite, it's quite an extraordinary work of literature and quite a profound effect that I think very few books ever have done. I didn't so realise realize the impact it had on kind of re the reboot of Christmas effectively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was definitely a big part of it. I don't think I know enough about the history of that period to be able to sit here and say, like, that's what that's what it was. Yeah. But it was definitely a part of this Victorian reboot of Christmas that definitely was a kind of thing that happened in the Victorian era. Like I said, it did, ha it did actually, in the way that quite a few things do, it did achieve quite a lot of its social mission. Definitely. To show people that actually there were these unbelievably impoverished people living slightly just conveniently out of earshot of, of, of the middle classes and things like okay. this. And, 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 how, and how are you doing it? Um, essentially, yeah, I guess you're promoting it via social media, etc. Yeah. People get to the website, they register, but they don't know the location. It's, I, guess, I guess a lot of people with these immersive experiences do, do something similar. It's, it's a secret location. They get told, I guess, the day before or the day of the event. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, we we tell people after they've booked their tickets, actually, um, where to go. I guess London's such a big place, you couldn't go too crazy on the, on the hidden location. I mean, some people do do it. At the, some people do do it uh, on on the day, but um, I d I'm not sure. I think just for, for a variety of reasons, we decided that we quite like the idea of you getting sent it as you booked, really. Yeah. Um, so, so that was that. Um, so that's that. Yeah. And, and, and the format we, we keep quite secret. Again, we even do secret sales. So, so that's something I really enjoy doing. I think it, it puts a lot of fun into the buying process, which then that becomes actually part of the experience becomes the buying process. So you just put your email in on a website and then you get a series of emails, the last of which gives you a, a, a secret ticket link that you can use. Fantastic. And so I, I guess you, I guess you've resigned yourself to the fact that you're going to be working over Christmas. And I guess if you're running there, yeah, I mean, like I said, this is a lot smaller. So actually, I'm sort of vaguely hopeful that I'm going to get at least a little bit of a Christmas holiday because there are, it, there, it, there's absolutely live music. Like, um, so we rebranded the Aransky Chamber Orchestra into a company called the Lost Estate. So that's like what 
who we are now as the Lost yeah. Estate. Like the Lost Estate, any event that we do, big or small, will always have live music in it because that is the core of what we do. Sure. We are we are about live music. But actually, this doesn't have an orchestra in it. Just has a little a, a group of musicians. I think what it, orchestra would be weird in in such an intimate context. But it's a yeah, it, it has a group of live musicians. But it does mean that hopefully. All the stuff you were talking about, that process. If we can get the kind of process up and running, I'm still vaguely hopeful I might get a bit of a Christmas holiday. Yeah. But if it's I don't, you know, c'est la vie. I mean, I have to say, like, I've, I've never... Um, I, if one of the things I really love about the Lost Estate is I feel the same way I did when I was, like, 19 and I hadn't been sort of hit in the face a, a lot of times by, by music. You know, and you've still got all that energy because you're so fresh to it. It's, it feels the same again, like, running this company just because just because of all the things we've spoken about, about like um, the fact that it actually makes money and the freedom that that gives us, not like the, the money that we make in our bank accounts, but actually the freedom that because we're a profit-making organization, we can have really wild dreams about what we want to do creatively in a sure. way that we could. So yeah, to be honest, if that means they have to work over Christmas, I'm okay with that. Yeah, I mean, thing. that's interesting, you know, compared to Gary Vaynerchuk. And, and, and you know, I've, I've, got, I've got my reservations. I, I kind of like... You know, if, if I'm kind of waiting for the baby to go to sleep, I'll put on a Gary Vaynerchuk video on my phone and it's kind of, you know, I, I kind of like just watching his crazy energy. But he's got something he talks about, clouds and dirt, you know, which is, it describes you in some ways as well. You know, focus, you got two, he focuses on two things, like the down and dirty, nitty-gritty logistics that you've got to think about and then the big picture, you know, the big, big picture stuff of what, you know, we're going. And I think that's kind of, you've, you've talked about those kind of two things, you know, the, the really, you know, the, the base stuff, which you, you have to do logistically to yeah. run an event and, and the high level stuff. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I suppose, I suppose uh, each is meaningless without the other, maybe. I mean, we talk about that a lot in, in terms of um, uh, strategy always having, because I think you can, you can get down so many rabbit holes, can't you, with things like branding, for example, being, being a classic one, where you can get down so many rabbit holes where there's no real practical application to it. But then at the same time, like to an extent, stuff about brand, like just knowing, I mean, I think even simple stuff, like for us, it even I, I would just say as simple things as knowing, knowing who, knowing who our events make you become, if that makes sense, as a, who, who, what kind of identity they give you as a person for coming and like what the point is of our events. Like when I say lost the state, you say X, what, what am I striving for in that regard? And like, who do I want? Who do I want you to feel like you are when when you leave one of our events? In that right. regard, like, so, so, so stuff like just some simple kind of high level stuff like that can really, really uh, inform the, the the like you said the nitty gritty of what you're trying to do and can actually have a massively powerful impact. So I think it's about finding a balance. Definitely. Well, look, I know I know we've kept we've gone on way longer. That's, it's been a fascinating conversation. From my side, um, can we give the website out for? Because I, I, this is going to go out next week, so there's still a few places left, I think. And um... yeah, totally. Things you can do: you could either go to www.greatchristmasfeast.com to find out about the Great Christmas Feast. If you'd like to find out a little bit more about the Lost Estate, it's simply www.thelostestate.com. Com. Those are the two best places to, to, to go. You, lostestate.com, thelostestate.com, sorry, you can watch a video from our Tristan and Isolde show. 
uh, in Night's Duckling Glory, the one we spoke about, that gives you kind of a flavour of what we're about. And then, yeah, if you'd like to come along to a great Christmas feast, we'd love to have you. It's a really, really, I think I'm really excited about it. It's, it's got this whole sort of storytelling thing, live music, lots of music that we've written specially for the occasion. And then it's got this amazing, uh, you can see it on the website, a really special four-course uh, feast. There's going to be a lot of theatricality in the food as well as some brilliant tastes. And I think right. it's a really nice re it's a really nice twist on a Christmas meal. It's it's the, all the feelings you'd want from a Christmas meal, but like not the dishes you'd expect to give you that feeling, I think, if that makes sense. So Definitely. it doesn't like, it won't make you feel like, oh, this is all very fancy, but I wish it was just a proper Christmas meal. It'll like deliver that Christmas warmth, but in completely new ways. That that's amazing. I I, I can Definitely say, I mean, we've got a small baby at home, so I, I can't come in December, but I would definitely come. <laughs> and I, I genuinely hope you, you run it next year because I'll come along with my wife and, and for sure we'll be there. Oh, amazing. Thanks so much, Dan. I really appreciate Look, it. It's a real pleasure. All the best. And thanks very much. Hey, thank you so much, Dan. All right. Take care. Do you want to sell more tickets to your amazing events? Events Frame Event Ticketing has been built to minimize the amount of time it takes to buy a ticket. Result? You sell more tickets. Check out eventsframe.com.